0: Sometimes you may wonder um, what are responsibilities for uh, your pastors and your shepherds, and and there are many. Uh, but I am reminded uh, each week as we plan uh, for our time together that it's important uh, for us in our planning and our thinking through our services. Uh, that we, you, and all of us be reminded uh, that we have no place to turn but to Christ. Uh, to be reminded that all oh, we like sheep have gone astray. And, and we do even now, those of us who profess Christ, we are prone to turn to our own way. Uh, but the Lord has laid upon Him the iniquity of us all. And we, we rehearse that every week here. And I am reminded in it every week that He is my only hope. And He is your only hope. Um, you are not your hope. And we'll even see here uh, in our text this morning of why that is so. Uh, I, I hope that it is an encouragement to you. If it hasn't been, I hope that it becomes an encouragement to you. Uh, and I hope, you, I hope you feast on it, long on it, think on it during the week. Um, that in the midst of your struggles and hardships and things that you go through and temptations and navigating through life, uh, that you are looking back to Him and looking to Him and looking forward to Him. Uh, we do have some of our folks gone, so just want to remind you, if you will, this week, reach out to them. How's Mark doing? doing better yeah Mark's uh, recovering from COVID and Nancy has been and back with us and great to see you Uh, we have uh, the olds who are out of town the streets who are out of town some of the Elliot's are out of town Mike's working uh, Grayson's out of town um, I'm probably missing Janice is out of town today probably I'm missing some but uh, just remind you that uh, we have church family members who are not with us today Uh, and if you will, remember them during the course of the week. If you have your copies of Scripture, if you will, uh, turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12. Uh, We're going to be looking at the last seven verses, 43 through 50. As we begin this morning, uh, we just want to be reminded again that we are considering Jesus. We are considering Him as Messiah King. We are considering His kingdom. Uh, we are and have been considering how that kingdom is misunderstood. I was just reminded over the past few weeks some of the things that we have seen. And it is embedded to some degree in the call that we have w- looked at several times. But the call that we hear uh, there in the 11th chapter beginning in verse 28. Come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I was thinking again this week about this invitation. Jesus is implying that our souls are deeply weary. Our souls are deeply weary. And we, may not, we may not characterize it as that. We may not say that. But what he is doing, he is is allowing us to know uh, the condition of our soul. It's weary. And uh, it's weary, and we experience the weariness. And it's weary because we are sinful. It's weary because we are rebellious. It's weary because uh, we are sheep who are prone to go astray. And and for the person who hasn't accepted Christ, you are astray. And yet even we would confess today in the confession of our sin each week is that we are prone to that. We're sinful. We're weak. We're frail. And that's exasperated uh, as we navigate through the complexities of life with all of its twists and turns. I was reminded of that this week and even as we were praying for Lifeline had a chance to talk with a mother this week who's uh, dealing with her daughter uh, who is contemplating abortion. And I was reminded again, every week, teenagers, 20-somethings, 30-somethings, even 40-somethings are making their ways to abortion clinics to end the life of young men and young women. It's a real thing. It's a real thing. But all of that is coming about in the complexities of life. Twists and turns and heartaches comes when we're dealing with our own mortality. As we struggle with life-threatening sicknesses, exhausting relationships, sometimes insurmountable financial problems, and then sometimes just when we are dealing with emotional and mental challenges and struggles that we just don't have any answer for. And we can't seem to find our way out of that dark tunnel as we go through those seasons of depression in our life. Um, And we have no answers for it. But Jesus does. He says, come to me. That's what he says, come to me. Jesus' invitation. He says, come to me. And then as we saw last week, what does he say? That a bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not quench. In other words, he'll not snuff that out. We, by that picture, are given a glimpse into his kingdom. And into the king of this kingdom. And we've also seen over the last few weeks that religion isn't the answer. In fact, the last two weeks we have looked at that. Religion is not the answer. Spirituality isn't the answer. It just isn't. Even the most religious and spiritual people of Jesus' day misunderstood His kingdom. And some of them, I'm sad to say, missed it. Missed it. They misunderstood it and they missed it. His disciples didn't fully understand His kingdom at the time that He was talking with them in Matthew's Gospel telling them about His kingdom. John the Baptist didn't even fully understand it, even with all that he knew. And you know what? Some of us today may not fully understand it. We may be misunderstanding His kingdom. We have more revelation than they ever had. But we can still misunderstand His kingdom. And I want you to know how serious that is. We struggle with it. And we need to understand that it is a serious thing. And last week we made two points. And I just want you to, I just want you to be reminded of this. That there's no neutral position when it comes to Jesus. Okay? We want to reiterate that. There's no neutral position. That's going to be, that's the backdrop for what we're going to look at today in our text. But there's no neutral position when it comes to Jesus. Remember his own words. Whoever is not with me is against me. Boom. He laid it out. He didn't mince words. He didn't try to... Help us understand it there. Well, there may be a middle ground. No, he said, if you are not with me, you are against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. I want you to hear that: gather with me, or either you are scattering. And the second thing that he said, that there was more than ample evidence to know that we cannot take a neutral position with Christ. We closed with that. There is more than ample evidence. The religious leaders and the people claimed they needed more evidence before believing and Jesus said, no you don't. I'm reminded of what C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing that we must not say. A man who has merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend it. And then Lewis goes on to write. He says, now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Now before we read our text... I want us to consider the term, and it may be a new term to you, some of you, adverse possession. Anybody familiar with that term? Justin, I know you are. Adverse possession. Brian, I think, is keeping watch over the flock in the back force. us, uh, I think, and uh, adverse possession. What is it? Well... It is the doctrine under which a person in possession of land owned by someone else may acquire valid title to it as long as certain common law requirements are met. And the adverse possessor is in possession for a sufficient period of time as defined by the statute of limitations. It goes on, common law requirements, and I'll just read a few of them. Continuous, a single adverse possessor must maintain continuous possession of the property for a stated period of time. However, the continuity may be maintained between successive adverse possessors if there is um, uh, privity between them. Uh, Hostile in the context in that they are not being... Unfriendly. It just rather means that the possession infringes on the rights of the true owner. And then there are certain other criteria that they must meet. I was reminded of that because for those of you who have traveled the intercoastal waterway, particularly those who are pretty familiar with it from Scotts Hill to Hampstead, You'll know if you are going north from Scotts Hill, out of Scotts Hill Marina or up the waterway, after you get past the Scotts Hill area, there is one lone old house that sits out uh, on a little piece of an island on the marsh. You can access that house uh, from 17 if you went through Corbett's Land, which is just north of where the Scotts Hill Baptist Church offices are. Uh, some of us have run a race down there one time. But anyway, you can access that house down there. Corbett owns all of that land. Wilbur Corbett's family owns all of that land from where it backs up to the Blake property there just north of the Scotts Hill Loop Road, the northern entrance, all the way to Whitebridge. So Corbett's owned that whole piece of land. But back many, many years ago, before they looked after their land like they do now, someone went down there on the water, and they built a house. And they kept taking material down there, and they built a house down on the water. And it was discovered, but when it was discovered, uh, the man who built the house and his heirs retained that piece of property that they never bought, that they never paid taxes on, simply by virtue of the fact that they had squatted on it for a number of years and had lived on it, and when it was discovered, then they were given the property by adverse possession. A little piece of history, a little piece of law. Looking back, does it still happen today? It does. I'll just let you Google Adverse possession, and you can look at the things that take place. What does that have to do with today's text? We're going to find out. Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 through 45. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. And then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. How do the two connect? Let's look at this text. Remember the controversy that had just taken place over the demon-possessed man. Jesus cast out the demon and then what is said of him? Well, the Pharisees accused Jesus of casting out the demon by the power of Satan. Jesus is pointing back to that man in that situation. And he's also looking at the Pharisees. And he's looking at all of those that John the Baptist has called to repentance. And for all of those who were baptized in John's baptism, which was not a baptism unto salvation, it wasn't a baptism unto redemption, it was a baptism unto repentance, saying that I am turning to God. And that's interesting. Is that that was a step toward turning to God and recognizing their sin. In essence, it was an emptying and a repentance and a cleaning of the house. Just in the same way that the demon-possessed man, his house had been cleaned. Jesus had cast that demon out. Now by virtue of Jesus casting the demon out, then we hear nothing about the man being saved. He doesn't receive Jesus. Jesus just frees him, if you will, of that demon that is in him. Pointing to, not to the salvation of the man, but pointing to the power of God over demons. And, more than that, the power of Jesus because He is God. What is He saying in all of this? Well, I'm not going to weed through the weeds about trying to figure out this place and that place and the eight that are worse. That wasn't Jesus' point. Jesus made His point in the text. Look at it again. He says that the last state of that person is worse than the first. In other words, he is pointing back to the situation, but he's saying the man that is left empty, that is not filled with something, that is not made unempty, now is subject to something worse than what he had encountered the first time. He's looking at the Pharisees who are rejecting him what he's saying is that the most dangerous place for any man or woman is to be empty. Remember what we just said a moment ago? There's no neutral position with Jesus. For those who think that they are neutral and they are empty of Jesus and somehow know that's an okay place to be, Jesus is saying, no, it's not. It's the most dangerous place you can be. No, it's not. It's dangerous to not have Jesus. Because you are open up then for things that are worse than maybe what you are experiencing even now. And the end of that is still even worse because you're subject to the judgment of God. Being freed from a demon is only ultimately helpful if the emptiness of the man is replaced with something more powerful than any demon. The man who's freed from a demon still needs God. Or his condition is likely to become worse. Jesus is also saying that religion the kind of religion of the Pharisees, even the kind of religion of today, even the talk of, I'm a spiritual person. None of that is accompanied with Christ. And the person is empty and are in danger. The religion that only seeks to conform the outward man is dangerous more than that is deadly. The reason why we have, we continue to point us, not to speak negatively, but just to point us, preaching and teaching morality is good. It's good. We need to. But when that preaching and teaching is left up to us to change, outwardly so that we look good outwardly we are left empty inwardly. And we're in a dangerous place. Jesus is pointing to the condition of the hearts of people. The demon possessed man is freed. Hallelujah! But he needs Jesus. Booney alluded to that just a moment ago in our time of intercession. The hungry man can be fed, but he needs Jesus or he will die a full, physically fed man only to spend an eternity in hell. The young lady who's contemplating abortion. We need to point her to Lifeline Pregnancy Center. There is tremendous value in saving the life of the baby. But that mother and that child and that father they need Jesus or they will die and spend an eternity separated from God. That is the reality of the world that we live in. That is the reality of our lives. This should be a warning to us. Becoming a good person is a deceptive idea that only leads to eternal death and damnation. Hear this. Goodness is ultimately destructive. That was Jesus' warning. Your religion is destructive and deadly. The emptiness of the demon-possessed man is destructive and deadly in the end. Now you would think at this point that Jesus would press on beyond this warning. It would seem that we need to hear something else. But he's interrupted. Look at verse 46. And while he was still speaking to the people, while all of this was going on, and he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers show up. They stood outside asking to speak to him. If you look in Luke's gospel, the place was filled and they couldn't get in. That's the reason they're asking, can, we, can, we, can he come out and speak to us because we can't get in. And we would think that a good son would do what? Say, "Oh, hold on just a minute. Let me go out and see my mama. My brothers and sisters, my family's here. He replied to the man who t- told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? When you think about that setting, that is a question that Jesus is asking to cause everyone in that room to pause. We read past that. We, just, we fly past that they would be like me sitting in a room. And someone bring my daddy up to the room. It's full. Push him up there in a wheelchair now. And say, your, your daddy's here to see you. And I turn around and I look around at the people. And say, well, who's my daddy? It calls everybody to pause and stop. And in stretching out his hand toward his disciples. He's pointing to his disciples now. Not everyone in the room, but pointing to his disciples. And he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Has Jesus' response ever disturbed you? Would you admit it? I guess most of us probably wouldn't admit it. Well, that's Jesus. He, he has that right. He something, but we understand that that is un, that is unusual. Here's another place that he gives a clear indication to what his kingdom is. He's trying to help them understand what it is and not stay in that state of misunderstanding. And first he's stating that his kingdom is uniquely different from any other kingdom. And how do we know that? Well, he seems to say, I'm not identifying with my family. And he is saying that. But he's not saying that I don't love my mother and I don't love my brothers who are outside. That's not what he's saying. That's not what he's saying. What he is doing is taking the opportunity to say, you need to understand what this kingdom is and who I am. He isn't saying that he's abandoning his mother and his brothers. We know that's not true because we get to John's gospel. And what does he do when he's on the cross? He calls on John to take responsibility for his mother after his death. What he's saying is, is that his family is not ultimate. Now, what I'm going to share here in the next few minutes is going to seem radical, and it should, because it was radical for them. We grew up with the saying that what? Blood is what? Thicker than water. And when we are making that statement, we are making that statement about who? About our families. Jesus is countering that. He really is. He's countering that. He's saying, this family, my mother and my brothers outside, they are my mother, that's my mother, and that's my brother, but they are not ultimate. He is looking beyond in his kingdom, and he's saying, they are not ultimate. What is ultimate is a new family the family of his kingdom. And we know that he is couching in a context of family because what does he say? Oh, he says, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, my sister, and my mother. I want you to pause just a minute look at your worship guide and go back to the catechism of the day who is the redeemer of God's elect the answer is the only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ now I want you to catch this These words are are incredibly true, powerful, and profound. Okay? Who being the eternal Son of God became man like us. Remember, we've studied Hebrews together. Like us. He had to be like his brothers. Okay? That's what he said. He became man and so was... And continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. What does that mean? Well, let me ask you this. Let's say I have a brother. I'll just use this as an example. I'm going to put you on the spot, Adam. Adam because I know you have a brother, Jonathan. Is your relationship as brother with Jonathan greater than your relationship with Jesus, who is your brother? There's no way it can be. Why? Nothing against Jonathan. He's a great brother. You love him and he loves you. But Jonathan's not God. Here we have God who says, you are my brother. That relationship then automatically trumps every other relationship that you would have in the context of your family. Why? Because now you are talking about an eternal relationship where the very Son of God is calling you brother and you have been made His brother through the redemptive process, through adoption, but something that I believe that is even greater than that, and I think we miss it at times, because you have been, if you are a believer, you have been born again. You have been rebirthed, and that rebirth is a rebirth into this eternal family where Jesus Christ, Christ is your brother. Isn't that incredible? And that's what he's pointing to. He's saying your earthly family is not ultimate. Your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is, and here is the peace. Not only is your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ ultimate, your relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ who are also brothers and brothers and sisters to Christ are ultimate. I was talking with Brian just a few minutes before the service and I was talking with him about some news that I had heard about a church and he said, I'm not sure if that church or he was pointing we were pointing talking about another friend that led into another conversation he said I think he he may be a part of a church attending a church who doesn't have a membership. The reason why we stress membership here, the reason why last week we gathered and we uh, affirmed again our church covenant is because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. My relationship with you is ultimate my relationship with my biological sister just or and I don't even have a biological sister I just said that but even my adopted sister or any of my other family members not an ultimate relationship unless they are believers it is not an ultimate relationship and it is not an ultimate relationship based upon any biological connection that I have with them Only if they are a believer. And Jesus was pointing that. And why is this so important? Well, the new family that Christ creates is ultimate. It's the family that carries with it the redemptive work of God. That is the reason why when we sang just a moment ago, redeemed how I love to proclaim it, is because we are proclaiming the greatness of our Redeemer and His redemptive work Work, because that is God's work. That is ultimate work. That is ultimate purpose. That is eternal work. It's a family that will remain together through all eternity. It's a family that displays the very love and nature of God. It's a family that was created by supernatural work. The supernatural rebirth of every individual that's in that family. And it is a devotion to that family that is ultimate. And when understood, it is the person who understands this relationship in the family of God who is best able to love and care for his or her earthly family. Don't you notice the second thing here in this text? And that is is Jesus is clearly setting aside old traditions. Which we know that is true and we'll find out even more when we get back and, and, and really unpack the Sermon on the Mount. But he's setting aside old traditions. We, we saw that he set aside this old tradition and this law that had been connected to the Sabbath. He sets that aside. What he's doing, he's establishing new boundaries as it relates to family and allegiances. We have to hear this, I believe, from the Jewish perspective. What was their mindset? Their mindset is we are an ethnic group and that ethnicity speaks to who we are. We are a family. We are clans. All of these things are important. And certainly there is value in that. But that is not ultimate. It's not ultimate. What Jesus is saying is radical. He's saying that their family, their clan, their ethnicity, even the the religious structure that they have built up around this their national allegiances. All of those are secondary at best to this family. Do you hear that? Secondary at best to this family. One of the ways, I was thinking through this, one of the ways that the current social justice force and especially critical race theory stands in opposition to the gospel and the kingdom of God is they attempt to reestablish Ethnic and special group walls that the work of the gospel has torn down. Jesus has said they are not ultimate. We can't build an argument in our culture and our society in placing these walls up because they're not ultimate. The color of a person's skin is not ultimate, it's not. It stands in opposition to all the work that Christ has done. As believers, our allegiance is to the body of Christ. And the way we see that is in our commitment to the expression of the body in the local church. So, for our friends who find themselves in churches, who attend, and they are not a part of that family by virtue that they are not recognized as such, and they're just talking in general about brothers and sisters, but the gospel has not been clearly defined. They are valuing anonymity. They are not seeking to be family as we should be to our ultimate family. And you are... My family, if as believers, if you've trusted Christ, you are my family. You are my ultimate family. And we are ultimate together in our relationship here. And you would think, okay, our family's big enough. Well, no, it's not. Because we press on in this very thing, and what do we see? Well, the family is this growing community. It's a growing community. Jesus holds open for that because He points and He looks at His disciples and He said, these are my brothers and my sisters. And then He goes on to say, for whoever does the will of my Father. In other words, it's open-ended in this sense in that those who do the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. And we know this is true. Because by the time we get to Matthew, what are we told? to go and make disciples. In other words, go make other brothers and sisters through the teaching of the gospel, through baptism, through discipleship. And I hadn't thought about it until this week, but I should have. Not every week we come to the table every week. Not every week is the text in Corinthians appealed to. We often read some of the Gospels, but it's not an uncommon thing for us to hear what Paul says when he is giving charge to worshiping at the table. See if you remember these words. It's the last thing we hear most of the time. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you what? You proclaim the Lord's death Until he comes. Even when we are coming to the table. We are proclaiming the Lord's death. In other words. There is even in that. An invitation to. Everyone who has not yet believed. To know. To see. To come to realize. What Christ has done in redemption. Which is the ultimate work. Establishing the ultimate relationship with the Son of God that now connects those who are connected to Him in a way like there is no other connection. And finally, I want us to notice something about this family. We see it in the context of the relationships that Jesus is talking about. When we take a look at our familiar relationships, there is an understanding, or at least most of the time, that it, they are relationships where there is a deep love. And it's not always the case because of our Sinfulness. But there is, at least in part, when we talk about our connection as family, there is, in essence, an understanding that this is a relationship that should be grounded in a a particular kind of love. Unlike if we talk about slave-master relationships, we are not thinking in terms of love. When we are talking about a servant's relationship, we're not thinking in terms of love. When we're talking about a worker's relationship, we're not thinking in terms of love in that way. When we talk about family, we're talking about love. But I think we spread that out even more as we look at this because we hear this, that Jesus is identifying His Father in this text as well. And we know clearly that there is a love between the Father God and the Son God and the Holy Spirit God, there is a love in them that is the the ultimate love for everything in the way that they love each other. And here's what Jesus said, and for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother, because in that it is grounded in the love for the Father in obedience and doing His will and doing what He has intended for us to do. And in that, that love now from the Father, from the Son, that has been embedded and poured in to us is the love that we have in the context of this ultimate relationship. I'm reminded of this. If you will turn to first John. Look in chapter four and verse seven. Now here's the command, love. But I want you to know the love is already there, and here's why. Hold your place there and go over, to pull, turn back a page and go to chapter 3. And Before I read this, I just want to remind you, in John chapter 3, Jesus is in conversation with a man by the name of Nicodemus. Nicodemus is wanting to know about eternal life in the kingdom of God. What does Jesus tell him? He said, unless a man is born again, he will not enter the kingdom of heaven. I think most of us are familiar with that story. Nicodemus is a bit confused, not quite understanding what it means to be born again. Jesus. Makes it very clear what he means to be born again because he points him back to what he should have known that was written by the prophet Ezekiel. And we find that in Ezekiel chapter 36. He said, A man must be born of water and the Spirit. And coming on the heels of that, right after God's word coming through, Ezekiel says that. And here's what God does He said, I will take from your flesh the heart of stone that is a hard heart, an unloving heart, a disobedient heart, and I will replace it in the rebirth. I am going to replace it with a heart of flesh that loves, obeys, beats for God. That's what what Jesus is pointing Nicodemus back to. Now, when we get to 1 John, In chapter 3, we hear a lot. I'm going to just limit it to this. Look in verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, so we're talking now, we're talking about sinning. We're talking about disobedience over against... Uh, over against obedience, sinning over against not sinning. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And here's the key. Look at verse 9. No one born of God. In other words, no one who has been rebirthed, no one who has been born again makes a practice of sinning. Why? Well, for God's seed abides in him. And he can't keep on sinning because he has been born of God. In other words, born again of God. He has the Spirit of God in him. That's so the the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 says, if you don't have the Spirit of God in you, you don't have life. You are not His. Why? It is the Spirit of God that... that that, that puts that heart in us and now abides there in that heart. Now with that, been reborn, look in chapter 4, and verse 7 he said, Beloved, in other words, those who are loved, those who are a part of this kingdom, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God. Going back to the rebirth. Has been born of God and knows God. The reason why Jesus is speaking of his kingdom in this context is because it is not a kingdom that is built on ethnicity. It's not a kingdom that's built on like-minded positions politically. It's not a kingdom built on nationality and allegiance is there. It's not a kingdom that is even built on our allegiances that are within our earthly families. But it is an ultimate allegiance to the ultimate king, to the ultimate kingdom. Finally, notice who is a part of this family. And this is where we drop down on. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Whoever does the will of my Father. Now, if I were to ask you today, are you doing the will of God? I think every one of us would become a bit perplexed in trying to answer that. Wouldn't we? Are we doing the will of God? I I would be with you. I would be perplexed. There would be a part of me who would say, man, I really hope so. I'm really trying. I'm working at it. I want to. But am I doing the will of God? He says, not if you want to, not if you're thinking about it, but he does say that. But whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, John wrote in 1 John 2, 15 and 17, he said, Do not love the world or the things in the world. Anyone who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from God, but is from the world and the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. John wrote in the Gospel of John in chapter 6 and verse 29 for this is the work of God or the will of God this is the work of God that you believe in Him who He has sent. I think most of us have probably heard of Augustine. Some of us call him Augustine but I don't know what the correct pronunciation is I just think of Augustine sounds a little bit better. He was 31 years old. He was born in modern Algeria. From all accounts, he had an ambitious streak uh, that would border on ruthlessness. But it was matched by a probing intellect and a thirst for reality that had the potential to unbalance him or even lead to perpetual disappointment. And the combination had taken him to great cities and led him to inquire into world religions and philosophies. Now barely into his thirties, he was on the verge of despair so extreme that one day, despite his pleasant surroundings, he could scarcely sit still or stem the flow of tears. And then he heard two Latin words, Tole lege, and that changed everything for him. At first he thought the words must be a part of a child's game. But he knew no game that included the mantra, take it and read it. But by what John Calvin would later call a secret instinct of the Spirit, he reached out for a copy of the Scriptures that lay beside him, opened it randomly as people in antiquity did, hoping for divine direction, and he read the words that brought him to faith in Christ. Do you know what the scripture was that he randomly fell to? Romans 13, 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And that changed his world. Augustine would ponder and seek to apply these words for the rest of his life. And for all the profundity of his grasp of God's grace, he could doubtless say of them what he wrote of the mystery of God's sovereignty. I see the depths. I cannot reach the bottom. My argument has been, this is me, not Augustine, has been... That what Jesus ultimately was talking about was an ultimate kingdom built on an ultimate relationship with Him that now establishes an ultimate relationship with all of those who trust in Him that is seen and manifest and understood and appreciated in the context of the local church. That's the point we are family we are family so what are we to do we are to love one another by this it is evident who are the children of god and who are the children of the devil whoever does not practice righteousness is not of god nor is the one who does not love his brother speaking specifically in the context of the church in other words, loving each other is a living evidence that we are born of God, that we are His children, that we are Christ's brothers and sisters and mothers. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, and anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. That is ultimate. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. Loving each other is the outworking of God's love within us. It's the work of the saving presence made visible. For what? For the proclamation of the Redeemer. And for the well-being of His body in glorifying Him. God is love and whoever abides in Him abides in love Abides in God, and God abides in Him. It seemed insignificant to some degree, maybe. Passage, maybe, that seemingly, I don't quite understand. Matthew was deliberate in placing it where he placed it. More than that, Jesus was deliberate in saying, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. I want us to be that. I want you to be that. If you haven't trusted Christ, Christ says, Come to me, all you who are labor and are heavily burdened and weary, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. For my yoke is light and my burden is easy. He will not, he will not break a bruised reed. And he will not cut off and snuff out a smoldering wick.